We are continuing our series, Encounters with Jesus. Today I will be reading Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign for his authority over us. Again, our passage is Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. A couple of thank yous this morning. Uh, If you haven't noticed, we have some new worship leaders. Uh, Person who is leading us through liturgy in the morning up here um, over the last week and the next three weeks. Um, Very grateful for those men for serving in those roles. So thank you, Don, for being here. Um, And also, uh, I just I have to acknowledge it. Bruno, our our music leader up here, just got engaged last night, and uh, and and he came. Andy came to serve us this morning super early, Uh, so uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, It's a privilege, as always, to speak to you again from God's Word. Um, As Alan mentioned, we're continuing our series looking at the encounters that Jesus had with real people in the Bible. And I've been looking forward to this series ever since uh, we chose it because I think there are so many direct applications to our lives. When I was in college 20-some years ago as a new Christian, uh, it was really common uh, for me to pause studying in the Illini Union and turn to a table next to me to some random stranger and engage them in a spiritual conversation. I learned this through, through the ministry of crew on campus. And those conversations would eventually lead to talking about Jesus. And in those conversations, there was always this one very important hypothetical question That we would ask people. For those of you who didn't go to the University of Illinois, the infamous bus called the 22 Illini got the worst reputation among Christian ministries. It was deadly. I would ask people if you were walking across the street and the 22 Illini plowed into you and you were standing before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I don't think the 22 Illini has ever hit anybody like this, but if it did and you died and you were standing before God what would your answer be? Why should he let you in? Invariably, the answer from these strangers that I would talk to sounded something like, well, 
I've tried to be a good person. I've done more good things than bad things. I'm not like that other guy. And that should open the gates. This is a very normal thing for anyone to think about, even Christians. Most of us are conditioned to think in a performance and reward-based system. Well, here in Luke, just like in the Illini Union 20 years ago, we find a young man asking a similar question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking, what do I have to do to get the best reward of all time, everlasting life in the future kingdom of God? Before we go any further, let me pray for us once more and ask God to help us to see in his word this morning. Father, I do pray, as we look at this text, God, that you would help us to see Christ as more beautiful than any worldly possession, that you would draw us to worship you in spirit and truth this morning. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, before I go any further, just a few pieces of context. Normally, at Christ Community, we teach straight through books of the Bible, um, one particular book. So week after week, we're learning more and more about the context of the book. Since we haven't done that here in Luke, let me point out a few helpful pieces of context. First, the person who Jesus encounters here is referred to as a ruler. That doesn't mean that he's a, a civil ruler of sorts or some kind of judge. It means that he is a religious ruler maybe over a local synagogue. And that's important because this man would have been well-known and considered to be a true worshiper of God, someone who was respected and someone who should be emulated. The second thing here is that this isn't the first time that we've heard a question like this in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 10, there is a lawyer, um, a lawyer which indicated that he was a master defender of the Mosaic law, That man asked Jesus the same basic question, and Jesus answers the the question that he asked in a very similar way to our passage this morning. He elaborates on the understanding of the law in order to highlight a blind spot in the one asking the question. This is in part what Jesus intends from Matthew chapter 5, which we'll talk about more in a bit. He didn't come to do away with the law, but he himself came to fulfill the law to explain it, to give more context to it. So let's look at this interaction, starting in verse 18. It says this, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now if we pause for just a second and consider a few things from these two verses. First, a lot of people have gotten tripped up over the years by wrongly concluding that somehow Jesus is denying his deity. Why do you call me good when only God is good, he says. The thing is, Jesus is actually doing quite the opposite. It was unheard of to refer to a rabbi, a teacher, as good in this day. Jesus is simply playing out the logical question. If you say that I'm good, and we know that no one is good except God, then who am I? Well, of course, we know he is God, the very Son of God himself. I also want you to see that the man is asking a very, very specific question. But the question shows that the man lacks understanding. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So from the outset, this man wrongly believes that he can do something to earn a place in God's kingdom. 
This man was asking, to be fair, a very reasonable question of a rabbi, of a teacher. Basically asking, what is your theological position on how a person can gain eternal life? But the man here started from the presumption that there was a list of things that he could do. But, apart from living an absolutely perfect life, which no one other than Jesus has ever done, no man or woman can earn eternal life. No man can earn the favor of God. The Bible is clear in places like Ephesians 2, where we read, For by grace alone you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works. Or Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. So this is the crux of Christianity. You and me, you are unable to make yourself right before God by anything that you do. You cannot do enough good to earn your way to heaven. There is, that is a completely unbiblical concept, right? But that's what this man believed. And Jesus knew it. So going back to the man's comment on the goodness of Jesus, Jesus himself is now going to call into question the goodness of this man. Look at what he says to this man in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. See, Jesus is testing the man's self-evaluation. And let me just suggest this. We are never the best evaluators of ourselves. And just a side note, I know we didn't study this, but if you look back at the beginning of this chapter in Luke's Gospel, we have the story that many know um, about the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's that place where the Pharisee says of the really sinful tax collector, well, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I at least fast twice a week and I give my money to the poor. He's basically saying, I do all of these things that God has commanded and therefore I have righteousness. Not like that dirty sinner over there, right? So this has already been talked about and Jesus kind of said at that point, that's not what I'm looking for. So here again, this man, right, just a few verses later says about the commandments, all of these things I have kept from my youth. He says, of course I have. Since I was young, since I was a young boy, I have done all of these things. And I don't think the man was blowing smoke. I, I think according to how he interpreted the Mosaic law, he had kept the commandments. He had never murdered anyone. He hadn't stolen anything. He hadn't slept with another man's wife. He respected and honored his parents. Now, if you've read Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, you know that Jesus actually shed some light on these commandments, right? The Ten Commandments. He, he may not have murdered anyone, but had he hated a brother in his heart. He may not have slept with another man's wife, but had he ever lusted after a woman. See, this man, like the counterparts, like his counterparts at the time, and like you and I are always prone to do, was determining his righteousness by checkboxes of very specific sins or the abstinence of those sins. But... He was ignorant of the true state of his heart. And Jesus knew this. He doesn't rebuke the man. Instead, he moves to expose his heart. Let's read again in verse 2. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you lack. Now, I laughed out loud when I read that. 
as I was thinking about the situation, just, just, there's just one thing you miss. Just one thing. You've done all those things, but there's just one thing you have to do, and then it's all yours. And Jesus says this, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And this is the man's response, verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. See, Jesus wasn't adding another checkbox for the man, nor is he doing so for us today. Giving wealth to the poor is a very biblical thing to do. And I'm quite positive this man was involved in some sort of charity because it was a biblical concept. But the call to care for the poor financially was not the reason why the man was sad. His sadness was a direct result of his inability to do what was being asked of him. Jesus said, you've got a billion dollars? Great. Go make a bank run. Take it all out. Give that treasure away. And when you do that, you'll earn your treasure in heaven, and then you can come follow me. Why was the man sad? It says very clearly, because he was very rich. Not just rich, but very rich. Now let me say, when I was reading this text... Truly, I really did not want this sermon to be about money. I tried and tried to make money an ancillary issue, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. There is no way around the fact that money and wealth are a core subject matter of our passage this morning. And while the Bible actually, if if you read all the places where it talks about money, it has a lot of positive things to say about money and wealth. It doesn't have anything positive to say about it here. And so we have to deal with it. When Jesus says to the man, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and give to the poor, then come follow me, the man walked away because he was very rich. What does that mean? Hear this, church. No matter what the world tries to tell us, money and wealth present a very real spiritual danger to us. If you're taking notes, write this down. The more money you have the more spiritual danger you are in. Said in another way, the more money you have, the greater chances you have to walk away from Jesus sad. Look at how Jesus explains this in verse 24. He says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, this is a message of impossibility. That concept is preposterous. A camel would have been the biggest animal that they would have known at the time, and a needle would have been the smallest man-made object that they would have known at the time. It's impossible. A camel can't fit through the eye of a needle. Jesus is simply saying that it is impossible for a person with much wealth to do anything to enter the kingdom of God. Of his own accord, that is. The people who heard Jesus saying this, they weren't trying to put a spin on his words. They heard it exactly like we read it here. In verse 26, it says, those who heard it said this, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. See, the people living at this time, which isn't unlike our time, I think, they had a sort of prosperity gospel mindset. 
The wealth that this ruler possessed was thought to have indicated his righteousness and God's favor over his life. So think about this. If you're a person, right, just in a church, if you're a person with a little bit of money, looking at a person with a lot of money, it's natural and easy to consider, why has God blessed that man but not blessed me? I'm sure people in this room have thought that. I know I have. So these people listening are asking, if the blessed, rich people of God can't get in, then the rest of us are in some serious trouble. But Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And this is really important. He isn't making a distinction between a rich man and a poor man's chances. He's making a distinction between man and God. With man... Salvation for the rich man is not possible, but with God, it is. And so here we are again, back to the crux of the gospel. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot earn favor with God. It is God himself who saves. So why then, this is the question I had to ask, is he singling out wealthy people in this passage? Or at least this wealthy person. Well, there's a general principle that no one, rich or poor, is capable of earning eternal life. But there's a specific warning here that money and wealth, as I mentioned before, present a very clear and present spiritual danger. Let me explain. My wife Pam and I uh, do a lot of premarital counseling. And one of the four major topics that we cover with new couples is money. And the Bible has a lot to say about money in this passage and in other passages. It's one of the most written about topics, right, in the Gospels. But you know what? The reason it's one of the four topics we talk about is that it's also one of the most contentious issues for married couples, which is important because the marriage relationship is supposed to mirror the relationship that Christ has with his church. All of a sudden, when you get married, two bank accounts, right, become one bank account, or at least they should. And you start realizing that the purchasing power of money is far greater than what's listed on the receipt. Think about some different categories. A term life insurance policy may cost $20 a month, but what you're actually purchasing is security and safety. A new car may cost $40,000, but what you're actually purchasing is status, or a comfortable ride, I suppose. A new house may cost $250,000, but what you're actually purchasing is comfort and shelter. A good meal at a nice restaurant may cost $150, but what you're actually purchasing is satisfaction. A vacation to somewhere warm may cost $3,000, but what you're actually purchasing is rest. A good education may cost $150,000, but what you're actually purchasing is knowledge and, you guessed it, future wealth. See, wealth has the ability to purchase fleeting tastes of what only Jesus can truly give. And wealth can give the illusion that deep soul needs are being met. In other words, money can purchase more, bigger, and better things that already distract us from loving God and following him. You want more status? Buy a $60,000 Tesla instead of a $35,000 Honda Accord. I think that's how much they cost. More comfort and shelter? Buy a bigger house. More satisfaction? Go to Hamilton Walkers instead of Guido's. Nothing against Guido's. I like Guido's. 
more rest? Try a private island from one of those Netflix shows as opposed to a beach in Orlando. More future wealth and knowledge? Spend more on Harvard or med school instead of Parkland College. The more money we have, the seemingly limitless opportunities we have to purchase tastes of heaven. Think about those values that I mentioned, money purchasing. Security and safety, for instance. What could possibly be more secure and safe than having your name written in the book of life? A car for status. How about the status, as Ephesians tells us, of being called a son or a daughter of the king? Housing for comfort, for comfort, an expensive meal for satisfaction. How about Psalm 67? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Randy Elkhorn wrote a great short book, little square short book called The Treasure Principle that I recommend to newly married couples. And it's based off of Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. And that reads this. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, where your money is, there your heart will be also. There's a story that is told of John Wesley once meeting a very wealthy plantation owner here in America. And after Wesley had explored this man's expansive estate for hours, he had only actually seen a very small portion of it. When the two men sat down for a meal at the end of the day, likely a really nice meal, the plantation owner asked, well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? And Wesley replied this. He said, I think you're going to have a really hard time leaving all of this someday. Money is dangerous because it affords us the ability to trust in ourselves. It affords us the ability to provide for ourselves tastes of what only God can truly give us in full. Real safety, real comfort, real rest, real satisfaction, true joy. Church, friends, the building and generation of wealth is not a bad thing. The Bible actually says quite the opposite. Monetary wages for hard work and savvy investing are actually good things. We are, in fact, stewards Right? We're caretakers of God's resources. But there is no question about it. The more money you have, the more danger you are in of replacing your love for God with a love for money. When we love God, we trust Him to provide for all of our needs. When we love money, we trust ourselves to provide for all of our needs. It is not the having of money that is idolatrous. It is the loving of money that is idolatrous. And the more money you have the greater the temptation to love it. Just think for a second. If tomorrow your boss said to you, I've decided to give you a $20,000 raise, what would be your first response? I do not know anybody who would respond with this prayer. Lord, help me to know if it is wise for me to take this $20,000. Help me to know if I'm mature enough to handle the temptation it may bring to find my satisfaction in material things. I don't know anyone like that. Maybe I need to expand my friend circle. Maybe you do. If you do, they're probably much older than me. See, it's appropriate for us to have a healthy fear 
of being or becoming monetarily rich. If you want to check where your heart is, ask yourself this question, as I had to. When you read verse 2, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, how fast did your mind work to tell you that this verse certainly doesn't apply to you? There must be context. But there's more that I think Jesus is teaching us in this passage. Not less than about money, but there's a bit more. As I said before, I wanted to be able to say this passage isn't about money, but it truly is. But the topic of money is pointing to a deeper issue. John Calvin once called the heart a perpetual factory of idols. And Jesus here is throwing up open the doors of that factory, and he's throwing a big wrench in the machinery of that factory in this man's heart. See, Jesus has never once said in any other gospel account to anyone else, go distribute all your wealth to the poor and then you can have eternal life. Rather, he says that to this man. Why? Well, this man claimed that he had kept all of the commandments. And Jesus says, well, how about this one? Exodus 20, verse 3. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, after essentially declaring that he is God, Jesus said to this man, before you can go follow me, go and sell all that you have. And after hearing this, the man walked away sad. He walked away from God because he could not dream of giving up all of his wealth. Why? Because he was more attached to it than he was to Christ. He had chosen money over Jesus, and he walked away sad. The question then becomes for us, what could God ask of you today? What could God ask of you today that if presented with the choice would be too much of a sacrifice for you? What could he ask you for today that would cause you to walk away from him sad? The call to us today is to throw off every worldly thing that would seek to rob us from Christ now or in the future. To ask God to open the doors of our hearts, our idol factories, and to destroy those idols. Craig is actually preaching at Rancho Community Church that we prayed for this morning. But I was talking with him about this the other day, and this is is what he said. It's always good to quote a pastor who's here, but it's not here. He said, what Jesus is inviting people to do and what you're inviting people to do is to loosen their grip on the things of this world and to grab hold of the steady and strong hand of God. Christ community, whatever you are gripping onto tightly, it cannot lead you to eternal everlasting life. The word of God says in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's what the word of God says. You cannot serve both God and money. As you consider money and wealth in your own life, here's a question to ask. Personify money for a second. What is your relationship with money? Do you love to spend it? Do you love to save it? Are you anxious about it? Do you hoard it? The warning here is clear, and so the encouragement is this. Give it away. Give your money to the work that God is doing in the world. Give it to the church. Give it to missions. Give it to the poor. Be generous. Give it away. Christ community, I pray that God would give us the ability to loosen our grip 
on material things and instead grab hold of the strong and steady hand of God. Finally, there's Peter. Let's look at what the sacrifice of our idols is worth by seeing how Jesus answers Peter in verses 28 to 30. It reads this. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Sorry. (coughs) He said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. See, Peter is, in a way, doing exactly what the Pharisee in the early part of the chapter 18 did and what this rich young ruler is doing. He's saying, well, we've given up our things to follow you, so surely we qualify for eternal life. Right, Jesus? In essence, we've done what that ruler didn't do. Now, Peter and Jesus, if you read the Gospel accounts, were such close friends, the closest of friends. And Jesus is always so kind to Peter knowing full well that Peter would eventually deny him in public, right, later on. Jesus wasn't looking to rebuke Peter. Instead, he encourages Peter and reminds him of the rewards awaiting him. He says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I want you to really listen to what Jesus is saying to Peter. Anyone who leaves everything behind for the kingdom of God will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, he will receive eternal life. Jesus is not making a conditional statement. He's not telling them how to earn eternal life. He's encouraging Peter. Hey, Peter, you will never come out on the raw end of the deal. Jim Elliott well-known missionary who lost his life bringing the gospel to the unreached to some unreached people in Ecuador famously said these words he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose recently as many of you know uh, a pastor uh, who has meant a great deal to me whose name is Tim Keller passed away after multiple years of battling with pancreatic cancer. There are few people in this world that have had more of an influence on my own walk with Christ than Tim Keller. And if you've ever heard him preach, and I know some of you have not, but if you, if you have, you will laugh a bit when I say this next line because it is vintage Tim Keller. Keller trained so many young preachers to to mimic this phrase. Here's what Tim would say. Yes, yes, yes. This story is about a rich young ruler, but, but, but let me tell you about another rich young ruler. See, Jesus himself is always the hero of every story of the Bible, Old Testament and New. And I thought, in tribute to a man who lived his life well for the Lord, I'm going to play for you about four and a half minutes of how he ended this sermon with his church eight years ago. And then I'll close this. So, how can we escape the power of money? The only way to do that is to look to the rich young ruler. You say, why? He was kind of a failure. He didn't get converted. He was rich and he was young and he had the opportunity to love other people with his money, but instead he held on to it. 
No, I wasn't talking about that rich young ruler. You know, there's two rich young rulers in this story. Didn't you see them? Didn't you see the other one? Jesus was 31 or so, probably, quite young. And Jesus had been rich. Matthew and Mark tell us that before Jesus went for the jugular, before Jesus confronted him about this, it says he looked at him and loved him. So in a way, Jesus was probably, could have been saying this, in his mind, Jesus could have been saying this. He could have been looking at him saying, oh, my friend, I'm a rich young ruler too, or at least I was. But for the love of people like you, I let go of my glory. I became mortal. I, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I was incarnate. That's what Christmas is all about. I was born a human being, born in a manger. But he says, oh, my friend, he might have been thinking in his heart, I've already been stripped of my glory, but I'm about to go into the depths of poverty. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be stripped not just of my glory, but of my friends. I'm going to be stripped of my garments. I'm going to be stripped of every single possession I have. I'm going to be stripped of my father's love, and I'm going to be stripped of my life. And I'm going to do it all for the love of you. You wouldn't love others enough to give your money away, but I'm going to love you enough to give away the most incredible wealth anyone's ever given up. So that you can have the only wealth that lasts, God himself, eternity, forgiveness. Now, what is he saying? Look, do you believe that? By the way, if you don't believe that yet, if you say, I'm not sure I believe in the incarnation, the deity of Jesus and the atonement and all that, I'm not sure I believe that. Do you see the resources for deep, infinite comfort and joy that are there then learn, explore, come, figure it out, and believe it. But if you do believe it, friends, those of you who do believe it, are you thinking about how Jesus Christ, the rich young ruler, gave up everything for you? Are you do you think about that till it makes you weep, until you begin to say, there's security, that he would love me like that, and there's significance, there's value, that he loves me like that? And when that begins to sink in, your money will become just money. It won't be your identity anymore. It won't be all the other things that it is right now. And you'll be able to give it away and you'll be able to heal the world with it. Somebody says to me, ah, typical minister, you know, you're kind of up here, generalities. How much do I have to give away to really be generous? Come on, just tell me. How, be practical, will you, for once? I know you're a liberal arts major, but, you know, be practical. And the answer is, first of all, that's not the right question. That's not the right first question. Excuse me. The first question should be, why don't I want to give away more than I do? Well, I've answered that. I took the entire 30 minutes to answer that. Because you're not looking at the, the ultimate rich young ruler who says, I gave my enormous all away for you because I loved you. Now, why don't you take your little all... <laughs> and be willing to treat it as not yours for the love of me and for the love of the, your neighbor and for the love of others. So, I mean, so the first question is, why don't I want to give away more? And the answer is, you're not actually looking into the gospel until it catches fire, begins to melt your hard heart. But then the second question is, well, how much do I have to give away? In the Bible, there are basically two, two rules of thumb. 
There's the Old Testament rule of thumb, the New Testament rule of thumb. You put them together, it's powerful and also practical. The Old Testament rule of thumb was 10%, a tithe. How, what percentage of your money should you give away to ministry and charity and to the poor? In the Old Testament, it was 10%, minimum 10%. And by the way, if you today, as a Christian, are giving away 10% of your income every year, congratulations, you just come up to the level of the Old Testament, which means don't pat yourself on the back. Because the New Testament... <laughs> has an additional guideline, and that guideline is this, sacrifice. Jesus did not tithe his blood. He sacrificed, and therefore what this means is that, by the way, you can tithe your blood and still survive, but you can't do what Jesus did and survive. And what that means is whatever your giving is, even if it's 10%, if it's not cutting into how you live, if it's not creating a measurable sacrifice in where you go to eat and where you go for vacation and what you buy for clothing, if it's not making a sacrifice, it's not enough yet. Oh, my goodness, you say, how could we give that, um, that much away? It will be a joy to the degree that you grasp what the ultimate rich young ruler did for you. Let us pray. Jesus sacrificed his life. He didn't tithe his blood. I love that statement. He sacrificed his very life and he poured out his blood for us to purchase us back for himself. He gave away everything so that we might gain everything. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We, I pray, by God's grace, Would we be a people who understand the gospel, the generous gospel of Jesus Christ so well at a heart level that we would loosen our grip on this world and that we would grab hold of the steady and strong hand of God? Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray for my heart and the hearts of those in this room. This is not ultimately a command to give things away. It's an invitation to follow you by taking up our cross and following you in sacrifice of our lives for the sake of the gospel and others. So God, I pray that our hearts would grow in generosity, that whatever it is that we are gripping onto in this world that prevents us from truly seeing you as the ultimate worthy treasure, God, that you, by your grace, would help us to loosen our grip on it. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.